Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. That'll be our sermon text for this morning. And before we read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we need you uh, to be at work if anything good is to happen in this moment. We need you to be at work in me to speak through me, to guide my thoughts, my words. We need you to, to work in us, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to receive the truths of your word. Father, we need you to be at work to uh, teach us what you would have us learn from this passage. We need you to be at work by your spirit to conform us to the image of Jesus we need you to be at work by your spirit so that as we go out from this place, we would be people who have met with you and who have been changed by you and who are resting in grace, resting in your mercy and living for you differently in the world. Father, we need you to be at work if anything good is to happen. And so we pray that you would pour out your spirit on us now, that you would fill us with your spirit and work by your spirit to your glory and honor and for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, our scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, Christians, uh, like all people, I guess, have very different ideas of our relationship to the rest of creation. That is, Christians have different ideas from one another. And uh, maybe these are all characters and, and straw men, but I, I think they're out there and you, you can 
uh, decide what you think. On the one hand, some might say, uh, this world is going to burn when Jesus returns. Why bother taking care of it? Or we were given the earth, so let's, let's use it as we see fit. Why put so much energy into caring for creation when there are souls to be saved? On the other hand, some think, uh, well, creation would be better off if people were not in it. Our goal should be to have as hands-off approach as possible. Let nature do its thing. The real problem in the world is people, and we should minimize the number of people in the world and generally leave creation untouched as much as possible. Finally, it seems there, there's always this perennial back to nature movement where we're called to embrace our inner beast, to go live in the woods apart from all creature comforts, to live in the wild the way we were, quote, meant to. Well, what do you think? Are, are we to control nature or leave it untouched or accept our inner savage? Would it dominate it, liberate it, or embrace it? Well, here's what we see in Genesis chapter 2. We'll see that we were uniquely created by God as a part of creation to extend paradise under God's authority. And so we're going to look at human beings this morning, human beings as we find them in Genesis chapter 2, human beings as being uniquely created, that is uniquely created by God, integrally designed, that is as a part of creation, innately vocational to extend paradise, covenantally subordinate under God's authority. And then we'll add one more. We'll, in the end, look at us as redemptively renewed, restored in Christ and given hope of a new creation. So first, uniquely created. Human beings are uniquely created by God. What does it mean to be human? Uh, we talked about this a bit a few weeks back when we looked at the image of God in humanity, and there we saw that human beings are created to resemble God in our whole beings, our minds, our hearts, our hands. Every part of us is to resemble our creator. We were created to represent God in our vocations as we fill and form and rule the earth. We were created to relate to God and to one another as inherently relational creatures reflecting our triune God. But today I want to start us by looking at verse 7. We'll, we'll come back to verses 4 through 6, but I want to start with verse 7. Verse 7 says this, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. See, what we have here is an intimate picture, a, a close-up shot, the, the, the details fleshing out the broad brushstrokes of Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Genesis 1.27 simply said, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Here in Genesis 2, we have not, not a contradictory story, but a, but a fleshing out of the earlier narrative, a, a slowing down of the story. Uh, even in Genesis 1, uh, of course, God's creation of humanity was unique. Uh, for all the other creatures, God simply said, let there be. But for humanity, God said, let us make. And here again, we have the uniqueness of humanity uh, in that God is pictured as a potter forming the man, shaping and fashioning him. 
But while creation as a whole, right, is of nothing, God made the world out of nothing, uh, man is not, right? He, he was created of dust from the ground. God made our bodies of the earth and then in a miraculous moment, breathed into the man's nostrils the breath of life. And the man, we are told, became a living creature. Now, a few things should be said here. First, uh, in one sense, man's origins are very similar to every other beast. Both were made of the earth or, or dust. Uh, both became creatures. Both are the effect of God's creative work. Uh, but there is also something unique here. There is a special act of creation on God's part to produce this man. God breathed his own breath into him. This gives us in picture form the theology of the image of God given in chapter one, that there was something godlike about the man. This picture also helps us understand what Jesus is doing in John 20, 22, when he breathed on his disciples and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus is showing them that when his spirit comes, they would be a new creation, newly born as it were. But let's not skip ahead too quickly. Uh, God made man of dust and breath. Note that man is not said to have a body or a soul. That, that, that is just what he is. It's not wrong to speak that way, but, but we need to remember that human beings are body and soul, dust and breath, which of course implies on the one hand the, the goodness of our body, something we often forget. Uh, God made them with his own hands, uh, fingers and toes, uh, itchy skin and out of control hair, brown eyes, blue eyes, green eyes, every part, right? The, the mentionable and the unmentionable all were made by God on that day. And while sin has brought shame, our bodies in themselves are not shameful, right? They are the handiwork of a wise, good and powerful God. And it is our bodies that allow us to, to live out what it means to be image of God in the world. These bodies that we wash, right? These teeth that we brush, these toenails that we clip, right? All are part of God's design to enable us to live as his image in the world. And this means that the goal of the Christian life is not to, to escape our bodies, as people sometimes think. We ought not ignore or neglect our bodies. They are good gifts from God, and we must steward these good gifts, caring for them now, even as we hope for the resurrection to come. We were created by God, right? like the animals, living creatures of the earth, but unlike them as well, because God slowed down and took his time with us, designing every part to perfectly reflect his image to the world. So we are, are uniquely created by God, and two, we are integrally designed, that is, as a part of creation. Man is not apart from creation, but a part of creation, right? Not in the sense of, of New Age mysticism, but in the sense of being stewards, caretakers of creation. Again, some think that we don't need to be concerned about our impact on creation, while others think the world would be better off without us. But neither one is true because of the way and the reason God created humanity. Now for that, we back up to verses four through six. Uh, again, starting in verse four, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth 
and the heavens. Now this title, uh, these are the generations of, is used 10 times in the book of Genesis. And, and these are the generations of means this is what came from. Uh, th this is what this person normally, this is what this person produced. So these are the generations of, uh, normally discusses the offspring of. Uh, so the story that follows the heading, these are the generations of Terah, discusses Abraham, the son of Terah. Uh, these are the generations of Isaac, heads up the story of Jacob. Uh, these are the generations of Jacob, heads up the story of Joseph and his brothers. And you get the point. Uh, but then how does that apply here? Well, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth must mean this is what came from the heavens and the earth. This is what issued forth when God created. And the first thing to come is man. Now, now verse five presents us with a problem uh, and, and then and even a twofold cause of that problem. Verse five says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Now, now here the concern uh, is not the whole world, like in Genesis chapter 1, but a, a specific part. Again, we're, we're zooming in from the breathtaking vistas of chapter 1 to the intimate details of chapter 2. And the problem in this land, uh, probably somewhere near Eden, we assume, uh, wherever Eden is, uh, there were no plants why? Because there was no rain and there was no man. Uh, verse 6 then gives us the, the first part of the solution, actually. Uh, a mist begins to go up from the land to water the ground. Now, uh, when we hear the word uh, mist, uh, what, what do we think of? Uh, maybe maybe uh, fog, uh, may, maybe Old Faithful, right? Some underground spring bursting out and spraying the world, uh, spraying the land. Uh, some have thought of it uh, that it means something like that. But the only other place that this word is used in the Bible is actually in the book of Job, Job chapter 36, which describes God's regular process for watering the ground. And it says this in Job 36, for he draws up the drops of water, they distill his mist in rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? See, these verses describe really the, the process of evaporation, condensation, and precipitation. And, and based on this, uh, what's described in Job 36, some have suggested that we should actually translate this word mist in Job and Genesis as rain cloud, which would actually make perfect sense in Genesis chapter 2. The problem is there's no rain, so what then happens? There's no rain and there's no man. What happens? Well, then a rain cloud goes up and begins to water the earth. Now, now, some object, but clouds don't go up from the land, as verse 6 describes, ah, but, but they appear to. And, and the language of scripture is the language of everyday experience, right? The sun does not rise, literally, but it appears to. And so that is what we say. And multiple times in scripture, we, uh, scripture talks about the clouds rising from the earth as they roll in off the distant plain until they appear just overhead. And so there, there are no plants in this part of the world. Why? Well, because there was no rain, but now that's taken care of. And there was no man, no man to work the ground. Uh, again, the, the words uh, for bush and shrub actually come in here. The, the commentaries tell me that these words refer to inedible vegetation on the one hand and cultivated grains on the other. Uh, now, while wild bushes could grow without 
man to cultivate them. Cultivated plants require a cultivator. And now here is the point, right? Human beings are not foreign to creation. Neither are they an intrusion. We were designed as an integral part of creation to cultivate the earth. Apart from us, God says the earth cannot reach its full potential, right? Human beings are necessary as human beings. And we'll see in a moment a, a little bit of what that means, but now just note two things. Uh, the first is, uh, well, we, we do need to be concerned about our impact on creation because we were put here to be its caretakers. That's our job. That's our role. But second, the world then would not be better off without us because we were put here to be its caretakers. That's our role. Uh, and the options are not dominate or disappear. As we will see, there is a third option. We are uniquely created by God as a part of creation. And next, uh, we are three innately vocational. Uh, that is, we were put here for a job. We were put here to extend paradise. Uh, and many think of work as intrinsically evil. Uh, and they, they then even picture heaven as a place without work. There, there's one sitcom, one relatively recent sitcom that pictures heaven as a place where whatever you want, you just ask for it and it appears. And pretty soon people begin to get bored. But work is actually a part of who we were designed to be. Human beings were put here to extend paradise to the ends of the earth so that God's presence might fill creation through his image bearers in all the earth. Work is not a result of the fall. Work is not a problem to be overcome. It's actually intrinsic to who we are. Uh, let, let's look at the text again. Uh, verse eight. In verse eight, God completes his work by planting a garden. So there was there was there were no uh, uh, there was no vegetation because there was no rain and there was no man. And then we're told that a, a rain cloud begins to water the earth. God creates man, and then he plants a garden. And then he places the man in the garden to work and keep it, as we will see. But no sooner does the writer say that than he, he kind of interrupts himself to describe this garden. And, and what can we say about this garden? I mean, first, it is, it is lush, right? It has every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. It is both beautiful and sustaining. Uh, there is a river in this garden that supplies water for the garden itself that divides into four, right? So there's an abundance then of water because of the river. Uh, then there are all kinds of precious metals and jewels in the surrounding area. Uh, the garden, by the way, does not take up the whole of Eden. Uh, the garden, verse 8, is in Eden. And Eden means something like pleasant or pleasure. And so you have this pleasant garden that God has made. Eden elsewhere in scripture is used as a symbol of a well-watered, lush, fertile, and fruitful land. And it was into this garden paradise that God, verse 14, or verse 15, placed the man to work and keep it. Now, uh, remember that humanity would be commanded to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. And so the point is, as they fill and form creation, they would extend this garden paradise throughout the earth. Now, I, I need to stop uh, for just a moment to address what is kind of a, a popular book on manhood in Christian circles that, that completely distorts something that is said here in verses 8 and 15. And if you haven't read the book, that's fine. Uh, it doesn't matter. If you have read it, you'll, you'll know what book I'm referring to. Uh, the text 
uh, says that God placed man in the garden. But this book infers from that that according to Genesis, man was born from the outback, from the untamed part of creation, it says. It goes on, afterward, he was brought to Eden, and ever since then, boys have never been at home indoors, and men have had an insatiable longing to explore. We long to return. It's when most men come alive. The core of man's heart is undomesticated, and that is good, the book says. And he goes on to say, essentially, that, that things like offices and taxi cabs and sidewalks kill our manhood. And the solution, of course, is get out into the wild. Now, there are multiple problems with this read of Genesis. And that's not to say that that book has nothing good to say, but its fundamental premise is flawed. Uh, first, the text doesn't make issue with where man was made. It's a, it doesn't tell us where man was made. It's a non-issue for Moses. And so it's not something we can make an issue of. To talk about where man was made is to read into the text and not out of it. Second, God places man in the garden. Man was designed for the garden. The, the book implies that God didn't do a very good job, right? That as if God were handing out job assignments and he blew it when it came to the man. Third, God placed man in the garden to cultivate it. How can we say that the heart of man is undomesticated when Man's God-given role was to domesticate the created order. Man's God-given role was to tame the wild. The author, author seems uh, to think that we need to get back to the wild because it's our natural home. Well, we're not to get back to it, but to tame it. That includes the wild within. It is true that we often head out into the wild, but that's not to become a part of it, but to subdue it, right? to conquer it, to, to tame it. And so God places man in the garden to work and keep it, to till the ground and maintain its fruitful abundance. We are not to dominate or liberate, but cultivate the ground to make it fruitful. And notice the partnership here, right? God plants the garden, man tills and tends and extends it as the image of God imitating his creator. We are uniquely created by God as part of creation to extend paradise. And fourth, we are covenantally subordinate. That is, we do all this work under God's authority. There are two special trees in the garden, you may have noticed, right? Neither one is magical, which is the way we sometimes read this story. Both are, are, are a better way to understand them is as a kind of sacrament. Uh, man is free to eat from the tree of life but forbidden to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and threatened in the day that he would eat of it, he would surely die. Now, Reformed theologians find here what we call the covenant of works. Uh, some are uncomfortable with this because the word covenant is not here in the text, but that's actually a, a false way of thinking, right? A covenant is just a kind of relationship, a, a formal binding relationship. In 2 Samuel 7, God makes certain promises to David he doesn't call it a covenant there, but he establishes his formal and binding relationship with David and his offspring. And then Psalm 89, in reflecting on 2 Samuel 7, calls it a covenant, right? Demonstrating that just because the word wasn't present there in 2 Samuel 7, that does not mean that the reality was not present in 2 Samuel 7. The same is true here in Genesis chapter 2. So, so what is this relationship, this covenant relationship set up by God? 
Well, first there is provision, right? You may surely eat of every tree, right? That, that was abundant provision for man. Everything he needed would be supplied for by God in this garden. Second, there is a prohibition. Do not eat of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, third, there is uh, the penalty, the threat of death if man eats. And fourth, there is at least the implication of a promise, right? What if man does not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What? Well, then if, if he doesn't eat of that tree, he continues to have access to the tree of life, a tree that in some sense brings life. So God creates this formal binding relationship with the man. Now we're going to dive into the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as we move into chapter three. Uh, but for now, note this, right? That the, that the man is not autonomous. He never was, and he never will be, right? His cultivating the ground is not any way he pleases, but under God's authority, which is really the way that we ought to do all of our work. All of, our, all of our working and keeping, all of our serving and protecting, all of our tilling of the ground and caring for creation, right? Whatever it is that we're doing in the world ought to be done under God's authority. And so Paul says in Colossians chapter three, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Your work, whatever your work, right, is a service to your God, the Lord, Christ. You cannot do your work any way you please, but you must do it unto him, knowing that from him you will receive your reward. When you go to work on Monday morning or whenever you go to work, right, you're not going to please your boss. You're not going to please your parents. You're not even going to make money, right? All of those things are, are, are good and fine, but they're not ultimate, when you go to work, you go to serve the Lord and you look for your reward from him. We are people under authority, given work to do for the glory of God, for the good of God's world. And so we work to those ends. So we're uniquely created by God as a part of creation to extend paradise under God's authority. But of course, you know that this situation did not last. So finally, we have to talk about Humanity is being redemptively renewed, restored in Christ, and given the hope of a new creation. Adam did not live under God's authority. Uh, the result was he was removed from the garden. The ground was cursed. Work became toilsome. Paradise was lost. In place of rivers and rain clouds came drought. In place of abundance, famine. In place of lush gardens was the dry, dangerous wilderness. Of course, the biggest loss was the loss of God's immediate presence in the garden. With the advent of sin, man's relationship with God was torn asunder, and so his relationship with creation followed. So what does God do about it? Well, first thing God does in Israel is he creates a new portable garden, a portable Eden in the form of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was meant to picture Eden, right? Make no mistake, right? The tabernacle and the temple were decorated with pomegranate fruit, symbolizing the lushness of the garden. Uh, they, were, they were decorated and outfitted with, with gold and with gems reflecting the abundance of Eden. The golden lampstand was designed to look like a tree, symbolizing the tree of life. Even the work of the priest 
echoes the garden. They are said to serve and guard the tabernacle. The same words, by the way, that are used in Genesis 2, to work and to keep. That was the priest's repeated role again and again. They were to work and to keep the tabernacle. The most striking feature, however, may, may be the cherubim, right? You, after Adam sins and is cast out of the garden, we will see God places two cherubim at its entrance to keep man out. Similarly, on the curtains into the holy place and the most holy place are cherubim, warning man not to approach God's presence on penalty of death. And there, in the tabernacle, as in the garden, God met with his people. And so he began to restore the broken relationship by renewing the place of fellowship. No longer the garden in Eden, but the tabernacle in Israel. Now, you may remember uh, at that time, God also provided for the needs of his people, not in rivers and fruit trees, but in water from a rock and manna from heaven, echoes of Eden for the people of God. If you, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll know, of course, that, that Israel defiled that garden temple as well. Once again, humanity was cast out of the land. God began to promise a restored temple. Ezekiel pictures this. Ezekiel's picture only heightens the, the garden temple connection. He sees a restored temple, and he sees a river flowing out from the middle of the temple, flowing out from the most holy place, watering the land. And on either side of the river is the tree of life, whose leaves are for the healing of the nations, Ezekiel says. Ezekiel 47 says, and on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, neither nor their fruit fall, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be food, their leaves for healing. Revelation picks up this language and, and basically just quotes it almost directly in Revelation chapter 22, speaking of the new creation and the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no temple because God is right there in their midst. It says this, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. See, humanity was removed from the garden. The temple was destroyed, but God would again restore humanity, first in their relationship with him, and then to the lush paradise of Eden, this time in the new creation, where God would again dwell in their midst. But how would all that happen? After, after multiple tries and multiple fails, right? how would things be restored and made new? Well, you probably know. Right? God sent Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, to tabernacle in our midst and to restore the abundance and fruitfulness of life in the garden. Jesus came and experienced the wilderness, hunger, homelessness, nakedness, enemies, death. But he rose from the dead, entering into a new creation and receiving from the Father the fullness of the Spirit. And having received the Spirit, the Spirit of life, he pours him out on the church, 
like rivers of living water, he says in John chapter seven, bringing life where there was death, fruitfulness where there was spiritual barrenness. And the church itself becomes the well-watered garden bearing fruit for God. Psalm 46 anticipated this. And in verse four, it says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the most high. Well, that river is the spirit who has been poured out on the church to give us life. Now that we have been refreshed by the spirit, we once again take up our job, our role to work and to keep, to serve and to protect, to work the ground, to make it fruitful. Now we do this knowing in light of the fall that the ground is cursed. The creation itself, Paul says, groans because of sin, awaiting the resurrection. And so we we work the ground We go about our jobs. We are caretakers of creation, like one one cares for the body of an aging relative or even cares for their own body, right? Tenderly, lovingly, all the while longing for the resurrection to come when the thorns and the thistles will be removed and we will dwell with God in his immediate presence in the paradise of God. Let's pray and wait and hope and work in anticipation of that day. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would give us a longing for that day when all things will be made new, when we will dwell with you in paradise, when we will, when we will be in the new creation, when we will drink of the river of the water of life, when we will eat of the fruit of the tree of life, when, when we will see you face to face, when we will live in in the the garden city of the new creation, the garden city temple that is to come. Yet we thank you right now that we have the foretaste of that in the gift of your spirit, that we have the foretaste of that in the community of the church. We pray, Father, that, that that we would enjoy these gifts even as we long for more to come. Thank you for Jesus who has purchased all of this for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.